there is an amazing story I really like um, about an ultra-orthodox group. Uh, one of the ways that the Ministry of Interior tried to harshen the, the life of the asylum seekers is by putting the offices in which the visa has to be renewed in an ultra-orthodox city, which is not very close to where most of the asylum seekers live. It's called the uh, Bnebak. And in those city, all of its inhabitants are very, very religious Jews who are, um, live in a very closed community which is, doesn't have a lot of uh, integration and connections to the broader Israeli society. But there was an ultra-Orthodox group that just saw every morning the huge lines of asylum seekers standing in their city, waiting in the sun to, for the visa renewal, and he just built a roof above the lines, above the queues, so they will have, so they will have shadows on them. That's how you say it. And it was amazing to see how those people who nobody, nobody imagined <laughs> that they will care about the asylum seekers have actually built with their own hands something so strong. From the hills of Jerusalem, you're listening to Is That Really? Stories and conversations about what it means to be Israeli, really. I'm Grant, and over the course of the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about asylum seekers and refugees in Israel. From 2007 to until Israel sealed its southern border in 2012, some 38,000 uh, asylum seekers have come into the country from Eritrea and Sudan. Some centers uh, and nonprofits have sprung up to help these communities, such as the African Refugee Development Center, um, founded in 2004 by African asylum seekers and Israeli citizens. It was created in order to protect, assist, and empower African refugees and asylum seekers in Israel. The ARDC began its work as a humanitarian aid organization and over time has adapted to fit community needs. Currently, the ARDC works to address gaps in services created by harsh governmental policies in the four key sectors of education, livelihood, advocacy, and rights empowerment. Um, Andrew sat down over the summer to speak with Leah Hecht of the ARDC and Guli Dolev Hashiloni. So uh, please enjoy this conversation. And after this episode, we'll get to hear from a few asylum seekers themselves and their stories. So I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. Um, all right, so I'm sitting here at the African Refugee Development Center in South Tel Aviv with Leah and Guli, two amazing workers here. Um, Leah, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you came to the ARDC? Hi, everyone. Uh, yes, of course. So you might be able to tell from my accent that I'm actually Australian, and I moved to Israel two years ago. And when I arrived in Israel, I didn't really know much about the African asylum seeker community. But basically, as soon as I walked off the plane, I joined a run where which the goal of the run was to raise money. And in that run, it was Israelis, internationals and asylum seekers running side by side. And through this run, I, I got the opportunity to meet many asylum seekers and then I started volunteering as much as possible including with the ARDC and through my volunteering I was fortunate to have the opportunity to start to work here full time. 
Awesome. And uh, Guli, could you tell us about yourself and how you came to the ARDC as well? Um, I'm doing national service here at the ARDC. I'm Israeli. And uh, the issue of uh, African refugees in Israel has been a very like, prominent political topic for years. So I guess uh, like for a few years now I've been interested about it and I volunteered in all sorts of programs regarding this issue. I guess first, if you could clarify what um, uh, what an asylum seeker is for for our listeners, I th that'd be helpful. Um, is it different from a refugee? Is it different from an immigrant? Sure, an asylum seeker is someone who is not in their country of origin, and they're asking their host country for asylum. They're asking their host country if they could stay there. A refugee is someone who has left their home country and cannot return due to a well-founded fear of persecution for one of five reasons. Because of their race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. And this person arrives in a new country, they're outside their country of origin and they ask this host country for protection. And when a person does this, they're considered an asylum seeker. So someone is a refugee, it's a legal status. It's something that needs to be given to you by either a government or a UNHCR, a United Nations body. It really, it's just a title to describe a life circumstance. And Guli, you mentioned that um, asylum seeker, um, immigration, re refugee status is, is a hot topic in political debate in Israel. Can you, can you share a little bit more about about how that how that manifests itself in Israeli media and Israeli culture? First of all, it manifests itself through the legal status of the people. Um, I think, as Les said, an asylum seeker is not supposed to be a permanent status. When you come to a country, you file an asylum request, and then the government should determine after a few months whether you're a refugee whose rights should be granted or an illegal immigrant who could be deported, more or less. In Israel, the fact that nobody could understand, could decide what should be done with these people um, made the... It's like, uh, what's the opposite of permanent? Temporary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in Israel, the fact that n nobody reached a conclusion about the way those people should be regarded made the temporary status of an asylum seeker a permanent thing. and. This crazy circumstance, uh, the crazy circumstances that cause this thing, are a matter of uh, of their portrayal in the media, of the way people feel regarding them. And in the meanwhile, because this issue is so politicized, uh, no action is being made, and they're stuck in this limbo. Um, can you can you give us some details about where the majority of asylum seekers come from uh, in Israel? Sure, so at the moment there are around approximately 34,000 asylum seekers living in Israel and the vast majority of the population, around 72%, come from Eritrea, which is in Africa, and around 19% are from Sudan, mostly from the Darfur, Blue Nile and Nabu Mountain region, and then the other small percentage are from other African countries, including Somalia or Sierra Leone and different countries like that. All the people, the, the very vast majority of people arrived in Israel after a very long and dangerous journey which 
often, people often describe how it involved kidnappings and ransom and very dangerous escapes. And they came across the, through Egypt into the Sinai Desert and crossed the border into Israel. So what we have now is a population that have been here for at least seven years. And that's because in 2012, the border between Sinai and Israel was closed. So since that period, no asylum seekers or refugees have, have come in. So like Guli described, we have a community living in Israel with a, tempor with a temporary status which has become de facto permanent who are looking to build their lives here, who have been here for many years. Many speak Hebrew. Uh, there is a very low unemployment rate, yet they still do not know what their future holds. They have been granted, those from Eritrea, Sudan and Congo have been granted temporary protection, which means that if you're from one of those countries, Israel will not deport you home. That's the status that stands today. But this temporary protection is a status that's been given to these communities. And Israel, like Guli said, has not uh, taken the opportunity to assess each refugee claim individually, which is one of the one of the key points of the refugee convention signed in 1951 and all the following protocols from that convention. So you mentioned that from 2012 onward, um, no one was able to cross into Israel from, um, from the Sinai. Uh, can, you, can you talk about any kind of legislation that, 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 that had been passed since then that has affected the asylum-seeking community? I, I imagine there must be some. The key law that has impacted asylum seekers are the anti-infiltration laws. And over the years, different laws have passed and then they've also been knocked down by the High Court. What that means is, is that the court, for one reason or another, has not seen it to be a legal or necessary law. One of the laws that, that went through that many asylum seekers experience and that still impacts them today is the law which required people to spend one year in the Chalot detention facility in the south of Israel, which is in the desert. So for one year, when single men would go to renew their visa, and asylum seekers must renew their visa every two to six months, depending on where you're from and what your status is here, they would be given a summons to go to the Chalot detention facility where they would have to spend a year there and you could leave during the day but it's in the middle of nowhere it's very expensive to leave and there was roll call uh, in the morning and in the evening that's one example another example of a law which we're facing today also from the anti-infiltration laws is what we call the picadon law the deposit law which is a law that provides that 20 percent of asylum seekers salaries can be, must be taken from them by their employer and put into a special bank account that they can get when they leave the country. Very recently, we went to court with our partners and for some specific groups of asylum seekers, such as single parents or people with a disability, this percentage was decreased to 6%. But still, what we have, this huge financial burden 
Some families have 20%, some have 40% taken from them, and they have nowhere to go. So they can't leave the country to, to, to try and take these funds. And there's been investigations where millions of shekels have gone missing because the employers have failed to put the money aside. But in addition to the direct anti-asylum seekers laws, their strange uh, status in Israel creates all sorts of endless bureaucratical problems. For example, you cannot open a business in Israel unless you have a permanent status in Israel. Uh, I personally believe that this regulation kind of makes sense, but what happens is that asylum seekers are not granted uh, permanent status in Israel, so asylum seekers cannot open businesses legally, which of course deeply affect their community life. And when they want to open a business, uh, such as small restaurants or a beauty shop or whatever, they have to do one of the two, either to do it uh, semi-legally or to find an Israeli partner, which is almost always someone who just, take <laughs> who just takes a ransom, a monthly ransom from the Eritrean businesses, and his signature appears in all of the documents. So this is only one example. Another example is the fact that uh, asylum seekers can no longer drive in cars in Israel because uh, they all came with Eritrean, like speaking about the Eritrean asylum seekers, most of them came with Eritrean driving licenses and those licenses can be converted to international driving licenses. The international driving licenses are, are, like, are valid in Israel only for one year which also kind of makes sense. But because of their legal status, they cannot get an Israeli driver's license. So after one year in Israel, a time that all of them have already passed, they can no longer drive a car. Which is a huge burden on their lives. Wow, and you guys mentioned this anti-infiltration law. Um, are these asylum seekers called infiltrators? What does that, what does that mean in, in, in legal terms? And how does that affect their, their identity? So it's a good question. From the moment that the asylum seekers entered Israel, they've often been referred to both in the media and on official documents as mistanenim, which means infiltrators. This has different connotations with what the initial anti-infiltration law was designed for, um, which creates negative a negative image. I mean, if someone's called an infiltrator, then they're looked upon as someone who shouldn't be in the country. What was the initial intent of the anti-infiltration law? The, I'm not an expert in this, but the initial anti-infiltration law was in relation to the Palestinian community. So by calling the asylum seekers misdunanim and infiltrators, there's a correlation in many people's minds between the, the different groups and the different stories. So the anti-infiltration law was created in the 50s against uh, Palestinian terrorists that sneaked the Israeli borders illegally. So without entering all the complex Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's easily understandable that <laughs> that uh, the Christian Eritreans have nothing to do with it, or asylum seekers, African asylum seekers in general, have nothing to do with this uh, political topic. But by using the term infiltrators, uh, or in Hebrew, mistanenim, against the asylum seekers, uh, 
the media created some sort of a linkage between those two groups and therefore creating negative connotations against them for the Israeli public. What are some of those negative connotations and depictions in the media currently of the asylum-seeking community in Israel? Oh, it's endless. Um, but on the other end, we must say that there are also very positive ones. So it's uh, a complex field. On one hand, some people, we see that the civil society in Israel, many parts of it, including uh, hoteliers, people from the ITIC industry are doing anything they do in order to help this community integrate. Uh, on the other hand, the current culture minister of Israel called the asylum seekers cancer a few years ago. Said they're a cancer in the body of the nation. Or the former ministry of interior said that it bring only diseases to Israel. Things like that. One other point is that um, in addition to being called misdemeanor and infiltrators, there's always there's been an idea that people came here to for economic opportunity, to find a better life, for job opportunity, and so there's this idea that uh, that 99% of the asylum seekers here are economic migrants, people that left to find jobs and then intend to go back. But what's being increasingly understood is that actually the people that came to Israel that decided to take this very dangerous journey where they risked their life were either fleeing from oppressive military dictatorships and underground prisons or genocide, war, terror and places where their lives were at risk for exactly who they, who they are. And very much like Guli said is that over the years there has been increasing conversation and in a way integration with asylum seekers because with the asylum seekers working in hotels and in restaurants, which is the main industry that they work in, they do meet a lot of Israelis and when people tell stories, this is how we build better understanding of each other. And last year when there was a very big threat between January to April 2018, where there was a policy of forcible deportation of the asylum seekers, what we saw was the entire tens of thousands of people from all over Israel come together from the left, from the right, from this group, from that group, in order to try and protect the human rights of, of this group. We saw El Al pilots who are very traditionally pro-Israel people stand out and say that they won't fly people to a third country. We saw Holocaust survivors stand up. There were people at huge protests with tens of thousands of people, scholars, doctors, employers, everyone came together to protect the human rights of the asylum seekers. So there, there is a bit of a, there's, it depends where you look is, is often what you tend to see. I, I think that's a good point to, to pivot a bit. Can you guys talk about what the ARDC does, the African Refugee Development Center does for the asylum seeking community? So the African Refugee Development Center, ARDC, is a grassroots non-profit organization and we started in 2004 and were initially founded by Israelis and asylum seekers working together. In the first few years we worked more in the humanitarian 
for the humanitarian needs of the community. We had a shelter and provided for the basic needs because that's what people needed when they came in. As the community settled and people started to begin their lives, the ARDC started to offer language classes such as English and Hebrew. And since... <laughs> excuse the squeaking. So in 2009, and following this, ARDC's also been a huge player in helping the community fill in their, their refugee status determination forms, which was very important at one point. And on the side was always education. Education was always seen to be important and this was one of the key needs of the community. Today, we have a very large education and economic inclusion program. This is our goal. Our mission is to, and is to provide, is to work with the community to help them access the best opportunities and education. There's a tremendous motivation within the desire within the community to learn, and this is this is what we aim to achieve. And we do this through offering various educational programs, either by hiring teachers ourselves or through creating partnerships with various institutions and employers. I think our educational, uh, I think our educational work can be briefly divided into like four parts that represent different uh, phases that in the educational process that the asylum seeker face. The first uh, branch of activity we do is uh, language, like uh, acquiring language skills. Uh, we teach Hebrew and English, <laughs> and we even have some asylum seekers who are interested in learning French. And uh, the second part of the activity are uh, vocational trainings, um, in which we let people, uh, like we, we give professional tools to asylum seekers so they will be able to further develop uh, financially. So under this umbrella we have, uh, for example, medical pedicure courses for women or uh, we had the car repair uh, course for men. The, the third branch of the activity is pre-academic studies uh, that includes helping uh, people get, uh, getting a high school diploma and the Israeli equivalents of the SATs or the uh, GEDs. And the fourth branch, which is the most complex part are the academic studies themselves. We have a um, few dozens of active uh, students, uh, of active asylum seeker students who study BAs or MAs in Israel. Wow, that's, uh, that's really impressive that the ARDC could do all of that um, under the same roof and, and still be a, a, a grassroots organization that's in touch with the community very directly. Um, I know I've seen sitting in the office um, Asylum seekers walking in and out and feeling feeling very much at home here and that they're able to um, have any of their questions or concerns um, accommodated, which I've, I've, I've certainly found amazing and very special. I'm wondering if you could both share with us um, a moment that you're very proud of um, since coming to the ARDC. Okay. Yeah, I can share a story. There's two key moments. 
One was, there was an asylum seeker, is, his name's Mohammed from Sudan, and he wanted to do his GED exam, which is the American uh, equivalent to the American high school diploma. And I went with him to the testing center and when he went to sign in to do the test, they told him, you can't do the test because you don't have a passport. Now, asylum seekers are unable to get passports from their home country embassy because they can't approach their embassy. Even more so with people from Sudan, there is no Sudanese embassy in Israel either. But really for asylum seekers, they, they, don't, they can't get a passport. It's impossible. What we saw here, I was very upset. Mohammed said to me, don't worry, we will get this changed together. Who is Mohammed? Mohammed's an asylum seeker from Sudan from Darfur. So what we did was we did everything we can and reached up and out and here and there and we finally got in touch with the president of GED International. He heard what was happening and they changed the policy for all asylum seekers living in Israel. So a very proud moment for me and for Mohammed was going together and him being accepted to do the test. To, do, to sit the GED test and then also being with him when he passed his first GED exam. So that was just a very exciting moment knowing that there are very motivated people like Mohammed who don't get upset. He was the one that had studied for months and then he wasn't allowed to take the test. And also people that work in GED, these amazing angels as we call them, who are very willing and open to doing their best to open doors for everyone because education is a right for everyone as it should be. And I'd say that the second really special moment was at the 3030 breakfast. What's the 3030 breakfast? We recently worked with uh, we recently worked with 3030 another organization to create a breakfast where we match 30 leading professionals from all different backgrounds and from some of the best companies in, in, the, in the world with 30 of the most talented figures from the refugee community. So each person, each mentor was matched with a mentee and looking around the room and seeing everyone interacting and enjoying and seeing two worlds meet that would not necessarily have the opportunity to connect was a truly special moment. And especially when one professional said to me, ah, this community is amazing. Why haven't I met them before? This for me was a very aha moment because I know this and we know this at ARDC because we work with individuals, with the community, and we could see the talent and the skills. But when you see someone else's eyes suddenly light up at who, who are these amazing people? I want to know more. I want to provide job opportunities as they should have access to these jobs. That, is, that was a very special, special moment. Wow. And uh, Guli, what would be your proudest moment or, or moments? Actually, there are many. And there's always uh, this differentiation between uh, joy and pride. I guess, because sometimes the strongest moments have nothing to do with pride. You're just sitting with people and hearing their stories and sensing this big humanity thing and actually feeling how you can easily overcome all the barriers of language, religion, age, and just uh, interact and just be friends with people so different from you.
if uh, I have to emphasize on a specific moment, I want to speak about Omar, um, another uh, Sudanese asylum seeker, but different <laughs> than the one Larry referred to. Omar is a very, very talented uh, young man. He studied by his own programming, although the first time he saw a computer was only when he came to Israel. And he said that this, uh, the world of computer science always fascinated him. But first of all, he didn't have the required certifications in order to study at a normal university. And secondly, he didn't have neither the time nor the money in order to study in a proper academic institute. So uh, Omar, uh, we found this amazing opportunity for Omar, which is the, uh, the Open University of Israel, which basically allows people to study uh, only very few courses every semester, and it's a very flexible institute. And together, I, Omar and I went through all of the registration process, and the amount of, uh, everybody was nice to us, everybody was willing to help us, but the amount of small bureaucratical <laughs> uh, problems we faced was enormous. For example, when we finally wanted to register him, we couldn't do it online because <laughs> his visa number has too many digits. <laughs> it has more digits than the Israeli passport numbers, and the website couldn't accept it. So even that thing <laughs> required endless phone calls. But eventually, everything worked out. And Omar is now a brilliant student at uh, the university. He combines work with studies, and he's supporting his family while acquiring a degree from a like from a certified and very respectable institution. And our hope is not only that uh, Omar will be able to improve his own life this way, but also that this will open the gate for hopefully a much bigger amount of asylum seekers that could pursue higher education in this way. I hope so too. Um, all right, we're nearing the end of, um, of our time, um, Leah and uh, Guli, do, do, do any of you guys have um, any concluding words or anything left out that you want people to, to know? Maybe what I want to say is something about um, the long-term goals. Um, in Israel, there is a unique situation because the asylum community, asylum seekers here are very, like not very, but they're considerably, they're relatively an old community because they've been here for at least seven years. So all of them know how to speak Hebrew, for example, and most of them don't face immediate housing problem, for example. So in, instead of uh, solving immediate problems, we look at the long-term goals. And sometimes when you face only the immediate, when you find a shelter, when you find something to eat, like when you look, when you try to provide shelter or when you try to provide food or immediate help, you always see the people as miserable. You always see the people you assist as weaker than they are. And I think that uh, the main thing I learned uh, through working with the ERDC is the, the strength of each of those amazing people. The strength of the communities, the, the Eritrean community, the Sudanese community, the strength of family. And I was amazed to see how brave they are, how smart they are. And how, even though the life situation is 
very difficult how unmeasurable they are. They're just... Uh, <laughs> they're humans just like we are. They're no better than us and they're no worse. Thanks for, thanks for that, Guli. Uh, it's a hard question for me. I think a key point to take away for me in just the way that I've through, like really to follow on from what Guli said because I couldn't agree more. Every day we're constantly inspired. I definitely feel like I gain more than any of the community members that we work with. But really we hear a lot in the media about refugees moving across the world. There are 22 million refugees. We hear all these very large numbers, but what we really forget to stop and think about and what we get the opportunity to do here is we forget that just refugee, it's not a definition of someone, of who someone is or their identity. Each person who has this status as a refugee or asylum seeker, it's just describing something very difficult that they've been through. And so to work together with with the community to be on equal level playing field as it should be and to work together to provide, to make the world better, to provide more people with educational opportunities because this is, this really is the key to, for people to lead better lives and to have better opportunities and then to create better opportunities for their children. This is where it all begins. So, and it's extremely humbling and inspiring to work with the community that knows this that really dedicates a lot of time to studying despite working extremely long hours. Thank you for that. Um, thank you so much for your time, uh, Guli and, and Leah. I really appreciate it and for sharing all of your insights and stories. Um, all right, till next time, signing off. You've been listening to Is That Really? I don't know about you, Andrew. But I think that was our best episode yet. Grant, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors, the Duke Center for Jewish Studies and the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University for helping make our podcast Is That Really Possible? And to you for listening and hanging out with us. If you've been enjoying the podcast or just want to make our mothers happy, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out our website, www.isthatreally.com. And tell your friends. We hope that you'll join us for the next episode. Thanks for listening.